0: Terrific. We're going to begin. Uh, Good afternoon and welcome to the Atlantic Council. I'm Steve Grundman, the M.A. and George Lund Fellow here at the Council's Brent Scowcroft Center on International Security. Uh, The purpose of this afternoon's event is to hear James Gertz, who is the Acquisition Executive of the United States Special Operations Command and who's going to make an address entitled Acquisition for Special Operations Forces. Uh, Thanks very much, Hondo, uh, for taking the time to participate in this series and have a conversation with us. I also want to acknowledge the support right off the bat of the Council's partner in this defense industrial policy series, the National Defense Industrial Association, which is represented here today by its vice chairman, uh, Ellen Lord, uh, from Textron Systems, and uh, whom I will prevail upon in in a moment to introduce Mr. Gertz. Before we move to the substance of the event, uh, however, I want to make a couple of administrative notes. The agenda of these proceedings is pretty straightforward. Uh, our guest is going to speak for about a half hour, uh, following which he and I will take those chairs uh, for a short conversation, after which I will moderate questions from those of you here in the audience. I could also moderate questions uh, that we take over Twitter. Uh, so this event is using the hashtag AC Scowcroft, is that correct? AC Defense, all right? So we are tweeting this event at AC Defense, and if you have a, even those of you, I suppose, in the room, um, if you have a question, but those of you who are watching on the the video uh, tape, or rather on the live stream, uh, could give us questions over AC Defense. Uh, And I can get those questions, and if they're good questions, the staff will bring them up to me, and I will pose them to Hondo Gertz. Um, Please note that the entire event is public and on the record. And as I've alluded, we are live streaming it over the website, over the Atlanta Council's website. Uh, Therefore, if I call upon you during the question and answer period, uh, please wait for one of our staff to bring you a microphone uh, and then carefully identify yourself and your affiliation before asking your question. Uh, Please also note that I will be fairly uh, abrupt uh, to conclude this event at 5.45. Therefore, I will appreciate you pacing your questions as we approach that uh, deadline. Uh, and in consideration of the number of other hands in the queue, thanks. Uh, Mr. Gertz's address today will be uh, what I believe, if I'm counting correctly, would be the tenth event in this Atlantic Council Defense Industrial Policy series. Uh, the series is an initiative to make a preeminent platform available to public officials who can address government's stewardship of, in- of defense industrial resources. The series is an initiative of the Council's Scowcroft Center on International Security and a further expression of what its namesake, General Brent Scowcroft, had in mind for the center, which is uh, to be a place that creatively cultivates a transatlantic constituency for strategic thinking about and practical solutions for the problems of international security throughout the globe. Uh, This series I don't mind mentioning is the public sector counterpart, if you will, uh, to our Captains of Industry series, uh, a series where we hear business executives perspectives on the public interests their companies serve and the public interests and the public policies that shape their markets. Alan Lord, for example, uh, uh, President and CEO of uh, Textron Systems, was one of the first two or three of the speakers in our Captains of Industry series, the counterpart uh, to this series. This series, however, uh, has featured uh, at this point now, finally, all of the acquisition executives Actually, just when we got the last of the acquisition executives here, two of them left. Uh, but I am uh, pleased to remind that <laughs> uh, preceding uh, Hondo to this stage on, in this series uh, has, has indeed just even within the last 12 to 15 months been uh, Heidi Hsu, Sean Stackley, Bill LaPlante. Um, and uh, I can hardly think of a more suitable suite of government executives to articulate some strategic thinking and practical solutions, hearkening again to General Scope mandate to us about the government's stewardship of defense industrial resources than these acquisition executives of the three military departments in SOCOM. Now, without further ado, I would like to welcome Ellen Lord. Uh, As I've alluded, she is here today on behalf of the National Defense Industrial Association, but of course many of us uh, would know her as well, better, certainly as the president and CEO of Textron Systems. She's also a great friend of the Atlantic Council and of mine, and I appreciate her coming here very much to introduce Mr. Gertz.
1: Thanks, Steve, and welcome. Please join me in thanking the Atlantic Council, including Governor Huntsman, Fred Kemp, and Steve Grundman, for their outstanding partnership in the Defense Industrial Policy Series. We're jointly convening this forum in order to really discuss the opportunities and challenges in defense acquisition, and I'm honored to be here in my role as Vice Chair of NDIA. So our guest today is Hondo Gertz, who I know wants to just get up here and speak. And what he's going to speak to us about is setting unreasonable expectations for the defense community in terms of acquisition. And I think that you will hear a lot about how SOCOM is doing things differently and how they're doing them very effectively. And hopefully we can learn from that in terms of transitioning things to all the other partners in the defense whole complex. So he leads the Special Operations Research, Development, and Acquisition Center, or SORDAC. He said that success requires purposeful cultivation of acquisition entrepreneurs at all levels. So that's what we hope to hear about today, how to develop those professionals. HONDA?
2: Thanks, Al. Steve, uh, you guys hear me all right? Uh, Thanks for having me here. Uh, To all my uh, friends, uh, associates, uh, partners from around the world, uh, thanks for coming here. For those I haven't met, I hope you find this uh, informative. Uh, It's a very important uh, area, I think, here in the government uh, and an area, if you've met me before, uh, I think you'd find I'm pretty uh, passionately involved uh, in talking about. And so a couple things, you know, I want to kind of go through today as we talk about SOCOM and acquisition. One, uh, give you a sense where SOCOM is, where we're headed. Uh, And I think one of the things you may pick up from this dialogue is how close acquisition in SOCOM is tied to operations in SOCOM. Talk a little bit about where we're going in SOF, acquisition technology and logistics. And then talk about kind of where we're going for the future, my blueprint for the future, how I'm trying to uh, help rise the tide of acquisition across all the departments. Uh, And arguably, you know, with the great guests, uh, Sean here, or, or uh, Heidi, or Bill LaPlante, they've got really, really hard jobs. I mean, if you look at what they're struggling with every day, the size of their enterprise, the level of political involvement, the sheer dollars, my job's really not that hard. Uh, it's important, but it's not that hard. And so a lot of what I'm trying to do for the department, quite frankly, is help the department push forward. Uh, Because in SOCOM, I think we've got some unique opportunities to help, again, rise the tide for everybody. Uh, Part of what I want to do is dispel some rumors, all right? And so uh, I'll walk through a couple of those. I may ask a couple of questions here to the audience. Uh, A lot of folks tend to know of SOCOM or know of Special Ops, but fewer really know Special Ops. Uh, And sometimes uh, that causes some confusion in and it makes it easy to dismiss what we're doing as not scalable, not transformable, not applicable. Uh, and I'll argue some of those I, I don't think really apply. All right, and then again, I really want to focus on where are we going on the future. You know, we got some pretty complex challenges uh, to, to address. How do, we, how do we get after those? Now, everybody's coming from wherever they're coming from. If you're a service guy, you're an industry guy, or a small business guy, the one thing I would ask is as we go through this Uh, And it's one of the tricks I play on my staff. As we talk about this or you think about things internally, you're going to want to say, no, we can't do this because. No, I can't because it's Congress. No, I can't because of this. No, because of this. I ask you, every time your mind goes to no because, try and shift it to yes if. All right? And start thinking about what it would take to allow you to operate at the kind of velocity I think we all want to operate with. What would it take to develop a workforce that's comfortable? What would it take for you to be able to decentralize to the degree I can decentralize and be comfortable with that? And I think if we can all start getting into the, yeah, we can do that if, then it becomes a much more productive dialogue. Otherwise, we all just start screaming at the wind, rage against the machine, and then we're kind of where we've always been. And so I asked you as we go through that challenge, that challenge me uh, as we go through this dialogue. I have the pleasure of leading about 600 folks. On uh, those 600 folks, do the entire uh, science and technology, the entire acquisition, contracting, and logistics uh, for the soft force, okay? So pretty lean uh, operation. We'll talk a little bit about why we think that uh, is a model in some cases, and a model uh, perhaps in other, not in other cases. Okay, so three, three biggies. Talk about SOCOM. We're gonna talk about uh, my organization, my intent, how I think about people, the culture we're trying to create, and then we're gonna talk about the way going forward, okay? Before I get there, one thanks. There's There's an old saying in SOCOM, you don't measure your contribution by your proximity to the final objective, okay? And we have lots of great operators doing great stuff, doing amazing stuff, but they don't get to that objective without the contributions of the folks here in the room. They don't stay safe on that objective without the contributions of everybody here. Uh, And so in SOCOM, it's really a team sport. It's not just operators, it's a team sport. Uh, And you guys are all part of the team. So when I talk soft acquisition, I'm talking us, not just me as an AE or some government guys. It's an us thing, okay? Next slide, if you could. So your soft force right now is about 70,000. That includes uh, civilians, uh, Guard Reserve, operational forces. Uh, That's about where I think we'll stay for a while. We were on a growth uh, curve uh, the previous couple years. I think uh, the commander would tell you this is about the right size for the Special Operations Command. So I think we're gonna kind of stay at that level. Again, all services, SEALs, uh, Rangers, Green Berets, Air Commandos, Marine Raiders, uh, and soft civilians fall into that number. Uh, you'll notice, you know, on any given day, we probably have seven to 8,000 deployed. Uh, that looks like, I mean, it's a pretty big number in itself. Uh, it's really not that big a number. The much bigger numbers you count, everybody who's, who's on alert, who's getting ready to deploy, you know, who's forward positioned and whatnot. Uh, so, you know, the takeaway is we have a large percentage of our operational force uh, engaged at any given time. You can pick your number of countries. Uh, Right now, I'd say 96. Um, You know, SOF used to be a force that was globally deployable. Now I would tell you we are a globally deployed force, and that creates some challenges for us. Okay, but right now, engaged in every uh, AOR uh, in relatively large numbers 24 7. So the implication, right, for the acquisition community, us, right, is you've got forces in small numbers, widely dispersed, doing a a huge number of missions. And what's even getting more challenging is their mission complexity is increasing, the number of missions they're doing is increasing, the number of partners they're engaged with is increasing, the number of environments they're working in is increasing. Uh, And so whereas a force three or four or five years ago was 85 to 90% in CENTCOM, now we've got a force kind of on all the different elements And so that creates some great equipping challenges, creates some great logistics challenges. You know, many of the forces are operating where we don't have log, you know, log-sustaining channels. So how do you deal with that? How do you create business models that operate when I can't tell you two or three months from now where everybody's going to be, right? So you get in this system of what I call plan for the unplanned. So rather than get paralyzed by that change, which could paralyze you if you, you, know, you tried to perfectly map out everything and then you know, the first order from the president screws up all your math, uh, or you can create vehicles, you can create approaches that can kind of leverage that change and actually use it to your advantage. And that's a lot of what we're doing. I left a quote down here at the bottom from the commander and hopefully you can see it uh, if you're in the back of the room there, but you know there is this notion that SOCOM is always pressing forward that we're always trying to get better, that we're always trying to innovate, that we're always the force if something bad happens, we'll be the first one to the guns and can figure out how to deal with it. If I asked my parents if something bad happened, who would they call? they probably said, well, you're special ops guys, you can figure out, you know, we pay you to figure out anything, right? So we'll talk a little bit of how you can, you know, it's unrealistic that one group can do all that, Uh, but one group networked with a lot of other folks can get at problems like that, and so again, the challenge for us is just think of the range, the complexity, the dynamic nature of us. How do we then create acquisition solutions that are efficient, are effective, work at the speed of soft, execute at the pace of operations, right? How do you? And so we think a lot about that before we do the acquisitions, as opposed to trying you know, me and handle uh, existing processes into that. Networking is important. Having lots of different tools is important, right? Having a great uh, collection of contributors is important. All those things go into our thinking. And what's unique for me and why I'm really privileged uh, in the SOCOM communities, I work directly for the commander. And so we have the opportunity, as he's deciding what his intent is, where operations are going, how we wanna now act trans-regionally and help the department, I can start steering the big acquisition ship towards that direction. Uh, and I think that's sometimes a challenge in some of the service organizations is they don't have that direct line and so, so they tend to get reactive when a JSAG document hits, or when a UONS hits, or, you know, they don't bring solutions necessarily forward, they're reacting uh, to issues on the battlefield. Uh, and ours is much different. Our chain of command is 06 PEO, to me, to commander. That's it. And right now, 99.7% of all decisions are at the 06 PEO level or lower. So massively decentralized, uh, kind of radically transparent, with a very short chain of command, very similar right, to the operational force. Right. So the key is, how do you culturally align what we're trying to do with the operations we're trying to support. Now, as you'd expect, this is a pretty wide avenue of equipment. Everything from submarines to satellites, everything in between. So we're going to run a quick video here. I mean, I could give you a thousand program briefs. My my intent on this video is just to give you a sense for the breadth of things that we're working on. And then from that, you can then see how we're going to go attack it. So if you can roll the video. A range of gear there. Uh, if your gear wasn't on there and you're in the audience, I apologize. Uh, you know, I could put a 20-minute video out there. Um, we have between 500, and 500 to 600 folks. We're running about 400 uh, programs and projects at a time. 100 to 200 combat evaluations downrange. About 100 science and technology efforts. Right? You can't do that without really focusing on people. All right. And we can talk process all day. Uh, I'm not a process guy. I'm an output guy. And the way to get output is intent, people, and culture. right? And so the same traits that I want out of that special operator are the exact same traits I want out of that soft acquire. We send them to the same leadership schools. We pay the same amount of attention to it. I focus a lot on people. Uh, and I, I would say for us as an enterprise, the thing that really worries me, whether it's a... Government acquisition guy, or a guy in your industrial shop, or somebody in the industry who's got a good idea—you know—how do we attract the best talent in the world to get after these hard problems? And are we really attracting the best talent in the world right now? Right? I came in the Air Force in '87. I love technology, AM high, flexibility is the key to air power, decentralized execution. Man, I was all fired up. I could have gone and done a bunch of different things. Does the version of me or the version of Ellen right now come out of school, go into DoD acquisition, or do you want to go out to Silicon Valley? Or do you want to go do something where you're really tested, where your skills are really uh, valued? You know that to me is a crisis in acquisition. It's not how much stuff costs or how long it takes. Those are all symptoms, right? And so part of what we're trying to do is, you know, work together, come up with new ways to create the next best set of workforce. I have a program with the Air Force where they screen their top uh, 100 junior officers. We pick about the top, one-fifth of those, deploy them to SOCOM, put them on our urgent stuff, send them downrange, and they get to operate on the uh, ops floor as the acquisition guy or gal. After 120 days, I send them back to the Air Force. I'm on about my hundredth person through that program. And I told the chief, you know, that's how I want to help you achieve your goals in Air Force acquisition. We're doing some similar things with the Army. I want to set up, Bill and I have talked about a fellowship with industry, right? Rather than wait for the next RFP, can we create fellowships where, if you've got a hard, hard charging person, come sit with some soft operators for a couple months. Help solve problems, you'll learn about SOCOM, you'll go back to your company, you'll, you'll get better at solving problems for us, uh, and we can invent some stuff at the start, and again, that will attract, I think, what we really need. So I can't you know, overemphasize the need to really focus on our folks. Right? And we've kind of got into this. We're hiring a lot of process managers. You know. In SOCOM, I try and have 15 or 20 different ways to buy something. And then charge that young program manager, guy or gal, OK, you're in charge. Pick the one you want. All right. We don't kind of think that way. Uh, anymore, and I think that's what's causing us to lose some of uh, you know our, our our real strength. To me, velocity is velocity is my combat advantage, right? Iteration speed is what I'm after, because if I can go five times faster than you, I can fail four times and still beat you to target, and I know I'm going to have a better product. All right, but that's not the way our system. That's not how we train people to think, uh, and that's really what we're going after here. And again, to be a valued part of the team. So, my, any folks in our office, you know, and I would say the same to you, I think we need to bring two two things to the table respected expertise and be a trusted provider. All right? We as a community have to mobilize expertise to help that operator in a way that engenders trust. Okay? That doesn't mean nobody gets a profit, that doesn't mean you gotta work 10,000 hours. But if we aren't a trusted partner, and we aren't bringing expertise, we're not relevant to that team. All right, next chart. I probably get you know, one to two visitors a week wanting to get the SOCOM secret sauce, wanting to know what authority they need to ask. OK. Who in the audience thinks I have any different authorities than any of the other AEs that you've seen so far? Really? Nobody thinks I have any unique authorities? Come on, put your hand up. All right, I have absolutely no unique authorities. All right, everybody thinks I can go fast because i got a bunch of prime suppliers that I've used for years that have big sole source contracts and I don't compete anything. Agree with that? You can't break into SOCOM unless you're a SOCOM supplier. You know, we don't compete much. All right, I think DOD last year, average competition rate was 58%. We competed at 75.6% last year. Three out of every $4 we put on contract was competed. All right, everybody thinks uh, we got some big primes. We don't like small business. Uh, We're not a friend of small business. We agree with that. Last year, about 33% uh, of our contract work went direct to small business. All right, so competition drives innovation. Having a good mix of bigs and smalls drives innovation. Having kind of that robust group drives innovation. Uh, everybody thinks because uh, we're kind of small, I can micromanage every program and you, your AE can focus on being a program manager. Anybody knows me knows that's not me. Right, 99% of our programs, all decisions are at the 06 or lower. All right, exactly the opposite. We massively decentralize, and that's what gives us speed. Uh, and I've told several of you before: if you want to come sell a product, don't sell me; sell the PEO. You want, you want to come talk about an idea of how to create a new business process, a new way to attach uh, attack things, then come to me. That's what I'm interested in. And so I've kind of you know I've, I've tried a hard time figuring out what the secret sauce is. Uh, and this is some of the things you know some of the things we go after. I set unreasonable expectations. I push things. I would rather fail going after something new uh, and and perhaps a game changer, right, than not taking a shot. You now one a classic example was uh, you know we were looking at putting uh, small diameter bombs on a C130. Traditionals had looked at it and created a couple hundred million dollar test program and wind tunnels and all this other stuff. We kind of said, well, let's put them on the wing and drop one, and if it works, we like it, and if we don't, we don't want it. And you know, the 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 standard test community, well, why would we do it? Why would we test it if we didn't know it worked? And I said, well, we're going to have to drop the twenty-five thousand dollar bomb anyway. If it works, that'll give us gain. If it doesn't, we want to go down that path. So we actually think about, you know, you kind of have the risk matrix that everybody learns at DAU. We kind of flip that the other way. What's the opportunity matrix? And sometimes, a 10% shot is worth taking. Unfortunately, who wants to put on their OPR or performance report or corporate report? You know, 10% of the things you did were really great. Right? We don't, that's not the way we think as an enterprise. Anybody think our enemies think like that? Do you think they're worried about failure when they're trying new things? Right? That's what keeps me up at night. An elastic business de- definition. Uh, we were challenged last fall on how to acquire stuff for our partner countries. My organization was not set up to buy foreign weapons for foreign partners. They don't have a DAU class saying, here's how you buy something from, you know, a foreign weapon to put on to give to a foreign partner. But there was a need, and so we figured it out. and We went out in a couple of weeks, started putting those contracts out there. Uh, so, again, do what the nation needs us to do, not what's in a mission dock for us. Again, I think cause, not a business, kind of speaks for itself. We're doing a lot of things on how to embrace uh, innovation, listen to new voices. Uh, We put together a thing called Softworks, a very public, open, if you have an idea, walk in. So I kind of have the old Thunderdome, if anybody remembers Mad Max mentality, right? Two walk in, one walks out. Uh, And part of my challenge to our own group was if you had a great idea to get to SOCOM, how would you get it there? And it could be because you know General Daly or because you know this guy or you know that guy and then they could get into this guy or that guy. But a 17-year-old with a great idea is not gonna know to call General this person or hire this BD person. So how do we make it easy to bring folks in? And then quite frankly, the real magic is when five of us get together and didn't know in talking to each other, we could come up with a whole way, a new way of doing something. So we've created this thing kind of called Softworks, which. The whole idea is to make it easy to bring folks in. And I measure them on a kind of return on collisions, and we can talk some more about that. Uh, but how, you know, I want that marketplace for innovation. I think SOCOM is a great marketplace for innovation. I don't need to own all suppliers. I don't need to own all the consumers. But if you've got an idea or a game-changing concept, I want you to think of us and make it easy for you to bring those in. Same with the low-risk uh, experimentation. You know, we got a couple experimentation things. I buy ranges for a week. If you want to come test something, bring it in. And then again, we are all part of a network. So I get a lot of questions, you know, why are you better than the services or are you better than, we have different problems. Again, the services have, they have some very large problems. What really works well is when we're synchronized. You know, I'm pretty adaptive. I can open doors quickly. I can test things quickly. I can get operators onto a problem quickly. I'm not good at a 10 year EMD program. Now, I'm like, you know, we're dogs watching squirrels, right? And so, you know, I can't build an AC 130 unless the service builds a C 130. I can't build an MH 47 unless the service builds a CH 47. So, what we focus on is be good at what we're good at, but create a really good network so that if we discover something, we can hand it off and transition it so the service doesn't have to repeat what we've already done. And again, I think that same thing in your IRD circles, uh, same thing in academia. It's all about the network, and then how do you leverage it uh, for positive change. So main message is SOCOM, about 70,000. That's probably where we'll stay, globally deployed. Environment's getting tougher. Soft 18L, pretty lean, wide, diverse set of uh, equipment, focusing on people. And then our blueprint, which you're all part of. Uh, and I you know, need your help. How do we help drive the department to the change I think we all sense we need, but we're struggling on how to get there? And again, every time in your own mind you say, no, I can't do that because my CEO wouldn't let me. Or no, I can't do that because Congress would never let that happen. Or no, I can't do this because whatever that is, switch it to yes, sis. Yes, if I could do it if I can go after that and then figure out how to go after that. And then I think we can all push change forward in whatever fashion is from whatever perspective we're coming. Steve, with that, over to you.
0: Okay, we will sit down and talk. Uh, All right,
2: uh, thank you.
0: That that was terrific. It gives me lots of uh, easy questions. Uh, They're easy for me to ask, anyway. Oh, um, and I think they will be easy for you to answer. Uh, what I wanted to start with was that right there. Okay. And give you the chance uh, or actually impose on you the obligation to give us, well, there it goes. Yeah, there you go. Actually, can you leave that? Can you, Paul, can you leave that last slide right where it was? Or are we, is, it, is it too far gone? All right, all right. I, I have it written down. It's good enough. And he knows it by heart. Um, I'm interested in examples of these, uh, okay. of these maxims. Let's start with uh, of your blueprint, unreasonable expectations. Give me a, a walking around example of how uh, setting unreasonable expe- expectations is operationalized at, at SOCOM, in AE SOCOM.
2: Uh, let's see. Anybody here of Talos? Right. Tell us. Uh, right, so For those who haven't. So, so tell us about uh, three years ago. Then the commander Admiral McCraven walked in. We'd we'd lost a number of uh, operators to gunshot wounds on hostage rescues. And his thesis was, have we really stepped back, and really taken a look at how do we protect that soldier at their most vulnerable point in a mission, <clears throat> and really kind of rethought that and looked at where technology has gone. Because if you look at right now, uh, we protect about 19% of the soldier. And while the materials are better and the level of protection is certainly better than it used to be, how we do that is not fundamentally different than how we've done it for a long time. And while we spend a lot of money on exotic ISR systems and exotic uh, aircraft systems and radio systems, all which have a component of survivability, at the end of the day, you still expose soldiers to very uh, risky situations, uh, and you try and manage that risk. But So his idea was, hey, have we stepped back and really taken, instead of taking another you know, what I would call hyper-incrementalism approach, which is how do we get another ounce out of the body armor, how do we get another ounce out of the helmet, and we're on the high end of all these cost curves. <laughs> is there a different way to approach it? Uh, DARPA had gone after a couple of these and spent a good billion dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said, "I don't want to have, I don't have a billion dollars. I'll give you five years and I'll give you about a hundred million dollars." Okay. If Cape was to do an estimate, they would say, "Wow, that doesn't look very, very yeah, yeah, Wow. And and, um, and I said, "Boss, you know, I just need your intent." And I told you, you know, I said, "This will be worth it." Because by chasing for it, one, we may surprise ourselves, and I tell you in two and a half years we already have with what we can do. And two, uh, it's drastic enough, it's gonna force us to rethink how we deal with industry, how we deal with academia, and how we think about technology. You know, whereas in the past we thought of it, and okay, let me talk to the radio guy, let me talk to the body armor guy, let me talk to the night vision guy. Well, if I can make my vest the radio antenna, I've saved a couple pounds and not had to go on all these curves, and so it's, it's really kind of made us rethink things. And then the other piece is, um, we brought in you know some of our most accomplished operators, and made them available to everyone. So it gets back to my Softworks. So the byproduct is, if you have a product now, you can come to Softworks. You got a new camera? Bring it in. Let's put it on a tree. Talk to a couple operators. You don't have to go through all the process of figuring out who to get to see who to get to see who to get to see who, mm-hmm. uh, and this return on collisions of one you know, is really the spin-offs have already paid for that hundred million dollars.
0: But it starts from you and the commander saying accepting one in five casualties on those missions is un- is itself unreasonable. Correct. Uh, so let's make an unreasonable
2: expectation on the system to solve the problem. Right.
0: Okay.
2: And what if we get there or not? will not be as important as trying to get there. But the traditional system, and again, as a taxpayer, you don't want to just throw money away willy nilly. Right. And so we're stewards of the taxpayer dollar. So the trick is, what are those things that that you can set an unreasonable expectation, but yet get results from? Right. Uh, You know, we talk about innovation and and I tell everybody, if you can't kill something as fast as you start it, you can't have an innovative system. I'm getting the innovation. Don't get yeah. ahead of
0: yourself. Um, but I also am going to take a quick sidebar here to say we're all going to be here for about 40 minutes. So those of you who are standing in the back ought to, you know, not be shy about claiming these 10 or 12 or 15 seats that are up here. I would strongly encourage you to do so. And secondly, it's kind of hot in here. Can you do something about that, Owen, please? Thank you. Um, let's let The oh, uh, innovation or the particular uh, formulation of it that uh, you had in your blueprint, enable innovation. So maybe... Just just take that, you know, pick up that segue right there. Another, maybe another example of how SOCOM enables innovation.
2: So so again, I, I go back to a marketplace, I go to Bazaar, right? You you know, so in my mind I think about how do I create marketplace? I don't need to own everybody who wants to bring something to the market. In fact, I may not even know them, but if I have an attractive market, they will come to me, mm-hmm. right? Likewise, if you have a hard problem or something you're really looking for, I don't need to own your problem, but if I create a marketplace, you'll come into that marketplace. And by me knowing you have that problem, we may figure out we're both chasing the same problem, so maybe we can split things up. And so to me, SOCOM is probably best positioned right now in the DoD as that marketplace uh, because we are, you know, in almost any, operating environment, we're in from, you know, submarines all the way to space, uh, and we have a, um, you know, pretty close proximity to the operator yeah. to get to get really at what you're getting at. So one is, how do I create a business system that does that, whereas traditionally we have a very serial establish a need, write a requirement, write an RP, select contractor, create material solution, right? A market doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the second piece, I think, in this is, uh, is the current system doesn't work well to co-invent something, right? What do you um, mean by co-invent? So co-invent, so we're working on a tallow suit, right? How do I create, you know, protection for those? So, so one of the hard problems in that is how do I keep an operator cool, mm-hmm. right? How do I keep, you know, if he's wearing, you know, a bunch of gear or she's wearing a bunch of gear, how do I regulate temperature? So we even, you know, in one of our marketplaces, in about 17 days, worked with some of the best uh, garment guys you know in the world, Uh, 3D printed uh, cooling loops, put those in suits, put a bunch of uh, health monitoring stuff, Uh, got that all wired to team radios and had folks write software that could measure all that and get it out to the whole team. That was about a 17-day project. Mm -hmm. That's a very commercially, so if you think of an NFL, or you think a NASCAR driver, you think a fireman, there's a lot of commercial applications for that. There's a lot of companies that would like to take that idea, perfect it, get it to market. So co-inventing is, we've got a problem, here's how we're getting at it. You may bring in a piece of that problem, and then together we've come up with a system. Somebody go take that to market. I don't care.
0: You're reminding me of uh, something I've heard. uh, Pete Newell, who was on, uh, Jay, talk about. Pete's moved out to Silicon Valley after leaving the service. And he says what he finds with Silicon Valley entrepreneurs is what what the great value he can be to them is we have really hard problems. Mm -hmm. Entrepreneurs want really hard problems. They are attracted by really hard problems. Uh,
2: The other other thing we're spending a lot of time on right now is how do I enable operator-driven innovation? So we all think we're smart enough to tell the operator what they need or what they want. Uh, Or that if we get a bunch of operator inputs and send it to a higher headquarters and write a requirements document five years from now when we deliver something that represents what the operator, the speed of our need, that is not at the speed us off. So for instance, we have put uh, engineering and manufacturing teams all the way at Firebase levels. They've had 3D printers, I've had 3D printers downrange for six years now. They just finished about their 30,000th project, design, develop, manufacture, downrange, at the point of need. Mm -hmm. So to me, that is, again, how do you create the marketplace of innovation? How do I empower an operator with an idea, a way to get to a quick prototype that we can then evaluate? And if I go back to my, you got to kill it as fast as you birth it, and then decide, do I want to continue with this or not? So I kind of have a acquire then require mindset. So let's let's um, stop on that for a second because
0: certainly one of the most vexing features of the traditional acquisition system, as perhaps most of us would know it in the military departments, is iterating between uh, requirements—you syst- know, the thing you're going to build to solve the problem and the money you have to build it—and sure. and iterating that over typically months and sometimes years. You have indicated there are several examples here, if not the the the, the typical pattern at Socom whereas that, that loop, that cycle is, is continuous and day to day. Am I hearing that right? And is that, just a, is that just the force of leadership that makes that happen? Or is there some kind of magic um, uh, that, that allows that fast iteration of requirements, systems, budgets?
2: So again, not everything is uh, monolithic. Okay. Right. And so when <laughs> I think acquisition, I think part of our challenge as an acquisition community, we think very monolithic. Let's develop the one perfect process, and a process that's got to enable us to buy an Ohio-class, you know, replacement, or a piece of soldier's kit, right? And I think right now, at best, we have two systems: the monolithic, good for everything, and then the Yuans, you know, kind of rapid reaction stuff. Mm-hmm. I view it completely different, right? We have a broad spectrum of needs. We we ought to develop a broad spectrum of tools to go after it. The FAR is quite flexible. The rule set is quite flexible. Mm -hmm. But over time, what tends to happen with a bureaucracy is you try and rig for worst case and then say, well, that should be sufficient for everything underneath it. And so you know, scale is a reasonable question. Is what we're doing scalable to a service? Uh, In not all cases would I say it's it's scalable. Mm -hmm. But I would also ask the services, I think you're going to look a lot more like me than I am you, because what are you doing? You're modding in-service platforms with new capability. Right. So if your approach to that is the same way you develop the capability from the start, then I think we've got a mismatch. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think the real trick is, I go back to people, how do you develop, train, empower, challenge a workforce that is comfortable operating across a, a wide spectrum? And I go back to industry. Same problem, I mean, I started writing proposals for a small business, right? You know, you guys mirror what we ask for. Over time, you look a lot like us. It's a kind of self-reinforcing system, right? How do we get the enterprise comfortable with a broad way of doing things, not just one, you know, one that's good for everything, which means it's very bad for everything else. Right, right, okay. That, that, that's where I think there's opportunity. And again, innovation to me is a leadership challenge. So it's it's all about making choices.
0: Sometimes you can do that iteration fast. Sometimes you don't need to. Yeah. Um, I I, kind of
2: say be as fast as you need to be. Okay. Um, But but I think we undersell also, you know, I get for change is an interesting thing. Um, We tend to we tend to say if we create an acquisition solution where the threat's constant, the money's constant, the requirements are constant and technologies are constant, I can deliver a great acquisition solution. None of those are ever constant. Right. So then we try and falsely hold them constant. Uh, we're doing a lot of thinking of how do I create models that assumes all those are gonna change and takes advantage of the fact all those are gonna change rather than become hostage to all those changing. So, so some of that could be putting buy points. You know, if a industry knows in our tags program, once every six months we buy our tags and fill up Pelican cases. Industry knows our buy points. That's their time to market point. They know the standard by which that tag has to operate in our system. Our users, every six months, get to choose what tags they need for the next sets of missions. So to them, it's a very responsive system. Again, kind of planning for the unplanned.
0: But but there
2: Uh, there may be uh, a couple
0: um, uh, spices in in your special sauce here. Uh, correct. Tell me if I'm wrong. That one of those spices is um, buy things on short, buy things fast, buy things on short cycle. Don't. It's not what you mm-hmm. do. Sign into a project with a ten-year EMD, right? Would, it, would could I extend that or extrapolate that to ball in, buy in small quantities? Uh,
2: certainly. I mean, you could it also extend it into somewhat of a consumable mindset. Uh-huh. Right. So I'm not sure I need to buy something with a 30-year log tail, right? Yep, right. If I don't plan to operate, if in two years. So we're very comfortable doing that as consumers. But for some reason, we seem less comfortable doing that as uh, a military uh, acquisition organization.
0: And I want to pull this thread even farther. Um, Are you willing to buy different things that serve the same mission? Certainly. I'll bet you do that all the time.
2: You can. depends on, again, it's it's not not a monolithic system. Right. Right? Right. But if I'm buying, you know, computers or mobile devices, yeah, what's the best thing we need for that? Buy there? You know, again, the trick is having some consistency in your architecture, right? Mm -hmm. Having some consistency, you know, in uh, in our weapons, you know, for soft air launch weapons, we define a common launch tube. I don't necessarily care what weapon goes in that. Here's, a, here's the standard. Mm-hmm. If you want to be on a soft airplane, fit in this tube. We'll write the software to get you off the airplane, then it's over to you. But everybody knows what that is, so companies aren't wasting their time going after aircraft integration. I want weapons companies spending their time on building me a great weapon. Not all the aircraft, you know, we don't have to repay it or uh the aircraft. In a year from
0: now or even six months from now, you might put a different weapon in that, too.
2: We already have. Yep, certainly. Okay. Uh, and I think as you see sensor sensor miniaturization, uh, you watch the trends of all this. Uh, we've done a lot of work with the radio companies on defining a common interface. So rather than having each radio come with the gadgets and dials and all that, and we've got to create all this uh, all the We got all the radio companies together. We define a common interface. And essentially, we're looking to put, you know, a brick, you know, four different bricks, which could be four different radios into a central housing. Mm-hmm. And if you're the next radio company and you want to put another radio in, here's the interface. If you want to go after it, go after it. But for us, and we and don't the, have The to interface redesign. you're talking about is a physical Is plate. a physical, yeah, physical <laughs> yeah, plate.
0: It's not a protocol. Correct. Or it's probably that too, but, right. but it's also from the user's perspective, right. the thing they put their right. finger and on. Right,
2: that, and that's likely go back to Talos. We needed to do that for Talos. We designed it so we could also then put it in cars, and boats. It's called Fire if you're if you're uh, if you're looking for it. is a uh, is an enclosure. Show that again. Rather than redesigning all these interfaces and in vehicles, you know, radio guys build great radios. Give me the next great radio, uh, and and not waste time on these integration issues. We're trying to do the same thing on sensors right now. We struggle sometimes because every new airborne sensor comes with an airplane you know, a very unique way, and it takes a long time, and it's, you know, I'd like to get away from that and say, here's some common ways to get on an airplane. Uh, we've kind of done that in the, in the electro-optics turrets. Uh, well, then we can, again, get those on there and then create the right cocktail for the mission. So if I go all the way back <clears throat> to Commander's Intent, Commander's Intent is we got a wide variety of capabilities to handle a wide variety of missions. Our acquisition challenge is how to enable that intent. So I'm going to begin taking questions in about five
0: minutes. Uh, rest assured, I haven't forgotten. There's a large audience of he- people here who themselves have uh, questions to ask, and we'll and we'll start those in about five minutes. Let me pick up the maxim: uh, uh, engage new voices. Mm-hmm. Um, how much I want to I want to connect that to the initiative, uh, which gained a lot of steam in 2015. Uh, punctuated by Secretary Carter's mm-hmm. trip to Silicon Valley, and, and I think it's more complicated than this, but at least one formulation of it is, oh, engage commercial industry. Is that part of uh, engaging new voices for you, or is yeah. that engaging yeah. new voices means something different?
2: Uh, certainly, but I'd say even more broadly than that. Okay, um, uh,
0: again, can you give me an example or two?
2: So, three months ago, we did a hackathon, and we had four pretty challenging problems, we said show up at uh, 5 o'clock at Softworks. Yeah. Um, you have two days, and uh, you need to solve it with open source software. Anybody can just register, and you can come. Just and- register. We had a family of four come, Yeah. a mother and dad and two, uh, two, two, uh, two kids. We had a number of high school uh, folks. We had a number of college folks. We had a number of local industry folks. Um, yeah. In two days, we solved probably three and a half of those four problems. Mm-hmm. All with open source, all we didn't, but it was even broader than that. Uh, so one of the uh, attendees here was a former Marine. Uh, she had done her time in the Marine. She was at a local university getting a degree in uh, IT and cyber. And uh, she came out, to a bang-up job. We gave her an internship on the spot. Uh, she was an intern for three months. Now she works full-time at Softworks. Uh, So, I mean, it's an ecosystem view of this. And again, that's just, that's just one of many. Um, Some of the things in Talos, again, if I make it easy, if I can reduce barriers uh, for entry for folks to come in, then uh, again, especially in the SOCOM world where it's not building the next JSF uh, and where it's very operator driven, we're seeing just getting the right four or five people together who didn't know they needed to get together at the time yeah. um, can come up with new things. And, and what we find is the up and coming generation wants to solve problems. So one of the reflexes of resistance, I'll call them, to Secretary Carter's
0: call mm-hmm. um, has been, oh, these commercial companies, they either don't want to or will not work with the DOD, either because the market's too small, the barriers are too tall.
2: Uh, Etc. How, how do you how do you I, deal I, with that? I don't see that issue, but I, I have an inherent Advantage that nobody else has Which is I own the s and I own the acquisition I own the contract and I own the procurement and you, you can find sustain. a way
0: to plug them in
2: well The challenge I think in some of these you know do and whatnot is you can create the right match And I'm sure you guys have all had it right you got there you had a great meeting everybody was sized You know, hey, game on. Well, who's going to get on contract? Oh, we got to go, I don't know. Does anybody know anybody in the Army or whatever? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because there's no tie from that event to being able to buy it. And so we're spending a lot of time on our side. Again, why am I surprised by change? I don't want to be surprised by change. I want to own change, right? And so what we're doing right now in a lot of our acquisition programs is building all the buy points, what I'll call catcher's mitts. So we shouldn't be shocked when somebody comes up with a new piece of technology, or the threat changes, or the operational mission changes. And we shouldn't be slave to, OK, that's a two-year POM cycle, and three years from now, we'll get a contract out after requirements document. So we're actually put, you know, I don't know what sensor I need on our ISR airplane two years from now, but I know I want the best sensor two years from now.
0: And so you ask for an appropriation that gives you that much
2: latitude. Yeah, build it into the program. Right. And then let everybody know where it is. So that if you're doing an IR and D program, or if you're in an academia and you're doing some research, you know what your time to market is, right? Okay. Or if you, you have a match make, you know where to actually go after that. Uh, and the other thing we're kind of doing at Softworks now is um, I would say flipping the engagement with industry. And, and now we're going to be going at least once a month with, OK, we're going to go off and talk ISR sensors. So here's two or three hours uh, of what we're looking for ideas. We have, you got ideas, bring them in, walk them in uh, and not, you know, right now we've kind of got an asynchronous uh, process. If you're in industry and you have an idea, send it to Tylo and it gets to somebody and it goes round and round. Uh, a much more uh, active dialogue, again, planning those engagements out for the next year to year and a half. So you know what our buy points are and you know where our engagement points are. It shouldn't be a mystery. Uh, to you. Okay, my last question, and then we will take
0: questions from the audience. Uh, S&T, Big Think Technology, Mm -hmm. not what are the solutions, what are the problems? What are the either physics or uh, integration? or So what are the big problems that the S&T
2: program is trying to unlock Um, for
0: SOCOM? uh,
2: We've got a couple, uh, you know, and I could spend another whole session on that. I'll take a couple. One's camouflage in the modern age, right? We've owned the night. I'm not sure we're going to own the night forever. What's camouflage in the modern age, right? How do you think about that with social media? How do you think about that with big data? How do you think about that with biometrics? How do you think about that if you're building a platform? If I have a cool looking platform that evades all radar but looks like a Klingon warship, does that in itself present an issue which nullifies what I was trying to do. Uh, and so I think camouflage in a modern age is a, is a, uh, a challenge. I think um, trying to figure out how to unburden the human yeah. and enable the human to do what the human does well and unburden them, whether that's physical unburden, whether that's focus, whether that's getting the right data to that person at the right time, uh, you know, integrating the, the bio with the machine So I mean, we're learning some incredible lessons with this Talos program on where does it make sense to augment human performance? Where does it not make sense? Uh, if you just think about situational awareness, you know, I want to protect in front of the face. Okay, that's to protect in front of the face means I get rid of, you know, if I'm not careful, I get rid of my ability to see everything, which is a great human trait. How do you compensate for that? Uh, and then I think the third one is uh, I think um, I don't know if it's a problem, but opportunity, 3D printing and distributing design, and manufacturing, uh, again, going all the way back to uh, operator-driven innovation. And then the fourth one I'll have to say is, uh, and we nobody talks about it, but we found it's almost the most important thing, is what I'll call low-tech innovation. All right, so we're all trying to get on the high end of all this stuff, yet most of the time we spend our day working with partner forces, right? Mm -hmm. And the things we can do that can have tremendous impact on the battlefield uh, in the technology area may not be the next neutron generator or any of these other things. Uh, And you know, just a quick example was we had one of our team (coughs) sergeants was having a problem uh, on a partnered operation, didn't, you know, the, the partnered force wasn't illiterate in all cases, he asked us if we could print a three by three by one inch terrain model on a 3D printer, cost us six cents, took us 20 minutes. And that's what he used to plan his op. And to him, that was a most creative influx of technology. There's nothing. 21st
0: century sand table.
2: Yep, it's there exactly it what it is. Yep. Um, Put it in his pocket, could give it away, wouldn't give things away. And so I think sometimes we overthink technology. And that's why a lot of what we're really trying to do, get that, listen to new voices is, you know, if you looked on my whiteboard, the number one thing on my whiteboard is never underestimate or undervalue simplicity. And, and I think we as a community tend to overthink technology, put too much technology out there. You know, we've got the Excel spreadsheets everywhere where all of us know about 1% of the capability. Yeah, we're still paying to put 98% of the capability out there. So, you know, taking it back and simplifying things mm-hmm. and reducing the burden on the human, uh, I think can have tremendous benefit, particularly as you talk about uh, partnered operations and working with coalition partners. Uh, and, and other forces.
0: And then the third instance that you mentioned, I can't help, I'm surprised you didn't invoke, uh, the third offset, right? That That is the thesis, as we would understand it from Bob Work, of the third offset, man-machine collaboration. Yes? Not that you need to... Yes. Uh, yeah, again, my
2: only challenge with the third offset is... Ah, okay. W- What's your
0: challenge with the third offset?
2: W- we are preoccupied with what it is, in my mind, the third offset for us should be an ability to transition whatever it is faster than anybody else in the world. Speed. Speed. Velocity. That's our velocity. velocity, right, which is speed in, a, in the right. right direction. Right. Uh, because my fear right now is we're all kind of starting from the same toolkit. And if you look at what's going on with a lot of our peer competitors, a lot of our enemies, their ability to transition is uh, outpacing us. And it used to not matter so much because we started with such a bigger tool set, but we're all using a very commercial tool set. And so you're starting to see catch up speeds and you're starting to see, quite frankly, the pace of innovation uh, outpacing us. And so to me, yes, figuring out the key technologies for third offset is very important. Equally, if not more important is whatever those are, how do we figure out how to transition faster than anybody else in the world? Because if we've thought of what they are, I guarantee you our enemies have thought of what they were too,
0: and they're willing to try the lo- the the mm-hmm. Occam's razor solution to the thing. Yep. Yep. All right. We will take questions from the audience. Uh, there is a hand in the back with a purple sleeve. I can see no more than that. Please I, introduce yourself,
3: sir. My name's uh, Brian Tobler from Get It Done Solutions. Um, can you elaborate a little bit on the challenges that SOCOM has regarding their um, you have service like or service uh, provided equipment then you have special operations peculiar equipment can you go over a little bit of the challenges you have of uh, tracking the lifecycle management uh, readiness uh, asset visibility things your program managers need do you have a system in sort act that actually does this
2: for you yeah great question uh, a couple of you may have been at SOFIC maybe last time time before you know my number one and number two challenges are logistics uh, especially as we try and now be a global operating force, not a just a globally deployable force. And, and uh, you know, to our to the question here, most of our formations are about 50% service-provided equipment uh, and about 50% soft unique equipment. The challenge for me is, since I support the joint force, how do I keep track of all that? And if I'm not, you know, I've got the everybody's challenged enough with total asset visibility, even within a service. Now I've got to figure out how to do it amongst three services, plus our own unique gear. Uh, and so we're spending some time with that. Uh, and I don't want to invent another force system of a soft, unique logistics tracking system. I'm really trying to figure out how do I use big data and some of these, uh, you know, new tools so that I can, I can get all the feeds from all the service systems, as well as figure out how to, you know, input and track our own uh, gear. Yep. To
3: follow up on that.
2: So, if how there does... were more hands, I wouldn't
0: permit the follow up. But as a general matter, I don't. But there aren't more hands, so go ahead, lay it on. It.
2: So, how would how would a
3: company or uh, somebody that might provide a solution to, to something like that that integrates those problems you're talking about? Sure. Now yeah. We go back to that.
2: event for them. Uh, so, you know, part of what we're doing. So I've now I think we're up to almost 150 cooperative R&D agreements. Uh, one of the things we're looking at is putting a pile of representative data out for companies to say, here's you know, a day in a life of soft logistics. If you want to take at this data and show us what you can do uh, and bring it back to us, uh, we'd be interested. So we're kind of trying to get our arms around that.
0: Okay, we're going to take a question uh, from the gentleman in the third row and then after him, the gentleman with the blue shirt in the third row on this side, if you'll bring him. Okay. Uh, Colin Clark, Breaking Defense. I'm wondering as uh, you know we keep looking more and more and more at the strategic sergeant or whatever we're going to call him Mm -hmm. next, um, the services are always going to build some big ass things like the JSF and the C-17, but an awful lot of what the services seem to be using is stuff that you guys started with. Mm -hmm. Um, How effective is the pipeline from you guys to the services, and how are you? How are both sides managing that?
2: Yeah, great question, and I would tell you probably in the last uh, two years, an area where I've spent a lot of my personal time uh, aligning it. And again, it's not a us versus them. We've got kind of different problem sets, but when it works well, how do we leverage our agility? And you know, we'll go acquire a couple things, see if it works well, then decide to build a requirement. Uh, Our dialogue's gotten much more robust about, well, if we're going to build a requirement or we're going to build some prototyping, how do we think about service participation on the front end, not get surprised about it on the back end? Uh, So some of the stuff we're doing on vehicles, for instance, uh, we've contracted with not only uh, some of the U.S. services, they want to buy a couple and try them out. We're doing the same thing with our allies, that they can buy a couple and try them out uh, and then make their own decisions. Um, the good, the good way with the, the, the way the system set up is if it gets transitioned to the service, it becomes free to me, so to speak, cause it's service common. So I'm incentivized to transition everything I can over to the services. Uh, and the services now as money's gotten tight, uh, and they're trying to get their, uh, their pace of operations up, he's incentivized, not start from scratch, start from where we left off. Uh, and so, uh, you know, that's now, uh, a robust dialogue, both at the senior levels as well as at the acquisition levels between the services on uh, home-on-home days. Uh, they've got exchange uh, folks down in our shop seeing what we're doing. Uh, and so that's, uh, that's becoming much more uh, robust than, than kind of happenstance, which it may have been in the past.
0: Let me uh, take this question here. Let me see hands on this side of the room who want to ask a question. Okay, there's gentlemen here on the second row if you'd bring the microphone too, go ahead. Thanks, uh, Zach Biggs with Janes. I'm curious, when you describe the emphasis on accepting risk to a degree, mm-hmm. be- because of the desire to get to a solution faster, do you think that's more broadly applicable um, across uh, DOD? Because we see from a lot of acquisition executives a hesitation with a degree of risk that maybe you can take because the programs are a little smaller, Um, you mentioned, for instance, the 33% small business, um, you also, there are some pretty significant examples of where those small businesses failed on contracts, but they're Mm -hmm. relatively small contracts. So I Mm -hmm. guess, is there a broader lesson that can be applied across DOD or does, do you have more flexibility given the scope of a lot of these, uh, programs and contracts?
2: Uh, I think there's broader applicability, but again, there's not one good tool for everything. Right. It's how you play all the different tools you have uh, t- to bear. And, you know, the services are not monolithic and they can choose in, in areas where either because of operational capability or because of where they're trying to get technology to go, they can choose to take risk. I think the difference uh, and, and what's unique about SOCOM is when we take risk, it's not the A.E. taking risk it's not my monolithic decision to take risk. It's a dialogue amongst myself, the commanders, right? And we as an enterprise decide, hey, is getting this capability downrange or going after this capability worth the risk that it presents? Uh, I think in the services, I think it's unfair to say the AEs won't take risk They're they're working in that larger system. When you can have a dialogue, and again, where you get the uh, commanders involved, because only the commanders can decide the risk of not having something. If you leave it just to the acquisition enterprise, you're just weighing the risk of fielding something. You don't know the risk of not fielding it. So in our system, the commanders decide when something's ready to field, not the acquisition enterprise and it may be something that's only half ready, is so important for an operational object objective that they're willing to take that risk. Uh, but that's a decision we all make together, not one that I just kind of unilaterally make. So you hear SOCOM talk about 80% solutions. You know, The user defines what's in that 80%, not me. So I don't get to pick the easiest 80% and say, here's your 80% solution, uh, because what's in that 20% may be a game changer, may not. That's, that's the dialogue we have. So the advantage of being in a combatant command reporting directly to the commanders, we can have that command dialogue. It's not just uh, you know, in, a, in one silo or the other, if that makes sense. And, and so I think the services, as they're trying to get their arms around how to engage the service chiefs in a dialogue, I think that's a, a meaty part of the dialogue that they're, that they're each undergoing right now. And they'll have to decide what they're comfortable with Again, I go back to intent. Intent drives people. People drive culture. Culture is what delivers you a capability.
0: Okay, we'll take this question from Harlan. And then I'm going to, uh, if you bring a microphone to the gentleman by the pillar in the back. Harlan?
3: Um, I'm Harlan Olman with the Atlantic Council. Thank you for a really spirited uh, discussion, which obviously makes a lot of sense. I'd like to push you a little bit more as to how you try to apply that to the services. Because one can argue, interestingly, this is the 30th anniversary of Dave Packard. And I would argue that that reform did not go nearly far enough. But you really have had basically 15 years of war, which is special Mm forces-like, irrespective. The last time I think we shot down an enemy plane may have been during Desert Storm. The last time we sunk an enemy submarine was probably World War II. So how do you relate this to when you have the services which are dependent upon two things, lots of people and lots of big platforms? And because those platforms take so long, irrespective of what they are, how do we bring in this innovation? Now, you know that obviously the service chiefs say we'll make things modular, but if you take a look with the LCS, for example, that hasn't turned out so well so far. So how do we take this user to commander, and it's almost a direct line, when you've got guys like McGraven and the new current guy who really understand this and really want to get down to supporting the troops. Somewhat different when you have the other services because there's a big disconnect between the chief of his service and people in the ground. Are there other ways that you can bring the good things that you are brought to bear to the services? Or is this just so sui generis, given the fact that we've been fighting this way for 15 years, that you have your own assistant secretary and your own budget, that it's going to be very difficult to make the transition to a more effective, efficient, and quicker acquisition process?
2: Sure. Good. Good meaty question. Um, when I get the question of scale, I often say I, I don't need to prove if it could happen. Because I would argue when I came in the Air Force in 1987 and 88, The Air Force then feels like SOCOM now, right? If you think back to the Air Force then, stealth fighter, stealth bomber, you know, um, aim high, flexibility is the key to air power. You could translate the words and it would sound a whole lot like this. Uh, And so I don't think it's can it happen? You just gotta Mm kind of work your way back there and figure out what the barriers there are to it. And again, I don't think it's a monolithic You can't not everything can operate at that speed. You've got to figure out the right way to do things. I think I think the opportunities for the service chiefs are to really look at the requirements, uh, because if it's a five year requirement process, you can't get mad at the two years of acquisition afterwards. Right. And so one look at the requirements and are, are they driving the requirements and the intent? How do they drive that down into their system? And then that creates culture and people. And so the Air Force 30 years ago had a culture of technology and rapid action, and that's what attracted guys like me to that system. And so they had, you know, you can argue at that time the golden age of Air Force acquisition uh, was because they had a very technologically savvy, uh, operationally focused workforce. Um, So I think you can get back there. You're not going to get back there in a day. I mean, quite frankly, I would tell you five to six years ago, SOCOM, to some degree, acquisition lost the model. Uh, and, you know, bureaucracies are kind of like barnacles, right? You know, you know, the, you, you just you don't see a barnacle. You don't know where they come from. You know, you don't know. Right. They have I no natural of them, of enemies. You never see one floating in the water. You never see one attached to your ship. You just know after about five years, you're going about half the speed. And the only way to get rid of them is a violent action, right? <laughs> and, and so I think I think folks recognize the, the issues. Now, I think it's a challenge of leadership and across a broad enterprise to start going after some of those. Uh, And I think if we can synchronize back to the risk question, the enterprise's ability and desire to understand risk and take risk where it's appropriate uh, and make that a enterprise decision, not a acquisition decision, where if if the risk is realized, then you go shoot the acquisition guy, uh, then I think you've got to hope at it. We're trying to do a lot of piloting for the DoD on what's in the state of the possible. And for a lot of the service programs, modding in-service stuff, modding C-17s, mod- looks a lot like what we do, modding somebody else's stuff. And so I think there's some lessons learned there. Uh, and, and I'm committed to trying to help the services wherever we can.
0: Um, that reminds me of something I'm going to insert here. Do you, do you end up uh, actively searching for or happening to attract, um, let's call them platforms or systems from outside the United States? And you look at that and say, well, it's not something I can get here, but I'd like to mod that. Yeah, that, we does that, that happen very yeah. often.
2: Uh, we we I think are still the biggest users of the Foreign Comparative Test Program. The okay. DoD we're the biggest user of coalition warfare program. Uh, I've got a very robust mm-hmm. uh, soft uh, capabilities uh, development MOU with Australia, uh, Australian soft, Canadian soft, UK soft. I think we've. We, as a community, saved almost six hundred million dollars by working together on things. So. so
0: some of those new voices speak French, yeah. Aussie, et
2: cetera, yeah. Swedish. Yeah, and and quite frankly, you know, across the world, we have a great operational uh, relationship with our coalition saw partners. Right, and right. most and of us see have, stuff. Yeah. yeah, and most of us have the same problems. Right, shoot, move, communicate. It's mm-hmm. not that much different. And quite frankly, I see a lot of innovation out of those pockets that don't have a lot of money or that maybe haven't been staring at CENTCOM so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, Norwegian SOF is another one. We have an R&D uh, agreeing with them, and they've got great ideas and great capability, and they've, they're facing a different threat. And so in many regards, they bring ideas and stuff to us, new voices, about what it's really like to operate at minus 40 yep. uh, than perhaps we've thought about it in a while.
0: All right, so we're gonna take a question right there, and then we're gonna come around to this gentleman here on the first row, please. There was a hand right in that vicinity, was there
1: not? Uh, yeah. uh, yes, sir.
0: All right, uh, please.
1: The name is Joanne Schubert Kovark, and the question is, for those who are, uh, let us say, out of the loop, what would you say are the channels them to go through to reach the commanders, the PEOs, and the acquisition execs?
2: Yeah, great question. And, and one that I, you know, I think we've been working, working to get our arms around. Um, a couple different venues. Um, one is our, you know, we have three to four every year, our experimentation events. And so that we basically call, put a call out and say, hey, we're gonna be uh, on this base for a week. Um, if you've got something you'd like us to experiment with, uh, bring the gear there. We'll have operators from across our force uh, be able to look at it and provide feedback. And so, th- so that's certainly an opportunity. Um, we' again, I mentioned we're going to start this monthly battle rhythm of having one of our PEOs or, or a particular capability area um, you know, set up a day and say we're going to do it on uh, UAVs. And we'll talk about what we're doing in UAVs, where we see requirements going, where we see things heading. Uh, and then in the afternoon, invite folks to have one-on-one sessions uh, if they want to bring ideas or concepts or, or uh, activities like that back. Uh, and then I would say uh, you know, events like this, uh, NDIA, SOLIC, uh, our big SOFIC in, uh, in May down at Tampa are all opportunities you know, where the community all comes together Uh, and are looking for for ideas and concepts, and that's a great way to make contact as well.
0: I suddenly realized I've broken my own rule. We are already into overtime, so I'm going to take one fast question, if you could, and then we're going to have to break. Uh,
3: Thank you. Tim Hake from Dentons. Uh, Hondo, to what degree are you pushing down this philosophy to the subordinate units?
2: I I think in, in a number of different ways. Um, supporting it within our, uh, you know, our organization, certainly that's easy for me to do. Uh, a lot of what we're also doing with the operational units uh, is bringing capability to them, bringing 3D training. So we've gone to two of the components now with, with a team to say, here's what's in the art of the possible with 3D printing. Here's how you engage our system. Here's how we get one of our mobile mob, uh, mobile tech centers down here. Here's how you can put that as part of your planning and ops. Uh, and again, I go back to, I think I'm the only organization where we really have everything from s to acquisition to logistics in the same hat. So as we're talking about log plans, our log planners will say, oh, here are all the innovation things we need to plan into that operation for log support. And so really leveraging all three of those pillars together as opposed to perhaps separately operating subsidiaries is a as they've been in the past, has, has helped us a lot.
0: Well, I, I want to th- thank you very, very much. I, I will uh, offer the, the, the following observation uh, on my own behalf only, and that is the very first thing you said when you stepped up here feels to me like the, 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 the most secret of the sauce. And that is that, um, uh, to borrow maybe a cliche, we're, we're all in this together. Um, nobody throws a problem over at acquisition and says, that's now your problem, nor do you throw a, a budgetary or a, a requirements problem back across the fence and say, now that's your problem. Um, and once you, once you start in that mentality, which you asked us all to engage in when you took the stage, I think that's, that's what, 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 what enables the fast iteration and, and other things that you were here describing. Uh, nothing more, no, but that's a leadership, you know, that's a leadership uh, uh, trick. Uh, as it were. Well, this couldn't have been better. Uh, serves the purposes of our defense industrial policy series beautifully. Thank you very, very much for coming all the way up here. Thank you, Ellen, and thank all of you for coming very much. Super. Good? Yeah, just great.